welcome to Raven Conversations, the show where we bring you the news and information around the Washington National Guard. I'm Sarah Morris, and on today's episode, Joe and I sit down with Major Charles Parsons, the commander of the 242nd Combat Communications Squadron. Major Parsons explains the mission of the 242nd Combat Communications Squadron and their dual purpose to prov- also provide a joint incident site communications capability, otherwise known as a JISC, for specific exercises and events. We also talk about the JISC's recent deployment to the nation's capital to assist with the presidential inauguration. Enjoy. Be sure to follow us on social media. Stay up to date on all the cool events, stories, photos, and videos happening around the Washington National Guard. If you have a question, have a comment, or just want to say hi, send us a DM, PM, tweet at us, whatever, and we'll answer you. We also love to share and collaborate. Send us the photos or videos you take at Drill or AT, and we'll tag you. Are you an active Instagrammer? Well, you might be a perfect candidate to take over our account. Send us a message, and we'll set something up. To find us, do a search for WA National Guard. That's W-A National Guard, and look for the blue check mark. Hello and uh, good morning. Um, this is Sarah, and I'm joined by Joe, who is uh, via car. So we'll be popping in and out um, in this podcast. And we are again using Teams, which has been so great uh, during the work from home uh, era here for our offices. And today we are talking to Major Charles Parsons. And he's the commander of the 242 Combat Communications Squadron. So if you'll just introduce yourself. Hey, good morning, Sarah. And good morning, Joe. Uh, thanks for this opportunity. I am, as you mentioned, uh, in the 242nd Combat Comm Squadron. And I also serve in some different capacities with some of our uh, capabilities, one of which is as the officer in charge of the Joint Incident Site Communications Capability, uh, which is a a communication suite that we can take out into the field and support any local authorities, incident commanders, in addition to uh, a military capacity. So that's a little bit about me. I've lived in Spokane for going on 20 years. I started out in active duty, grew up in Michigan uh, after active duty. I made the transition over to the National Guard and uh, been in the National Guard for about 16 years. So again, thanks for having me. So uh, I think the first question like we always like to ask is uh, what is it that the JISC or Joint Incident Site Communications capability does and how does it support uh, missions both state and federal? All right, Joe. Well, that's a great question. It's it's a really cool piece of equipment that is continuously changing to keep up with technology and continue with its interoperability with other services and other uh, platforms for communication. Uh, it's a team of six people from different Air Force specialties uh, that different uh, skill sets from from radios to server maintenance uh, to networking and hardware all the way over to folks that can work with uh, the power supply and logistics. So the the capabilities is quite impressive. It fits all in the back of a, a trailer, uh, a double axle trailer that can be pulled behind 
like an F-350 truck. It can be easily rolled out uh, within a matter of a couple hours. And within the state of Washington for where we're located on the east side, we can get anywhere within eight hours in the state, but certainly in our community within two hours, we should be able to respond to an incident commander or a military commander on site. And within 45 minutes of uh, putting our boots on the, the footprint, we should be able to handle hand uh, an incident commander, a laptop, uh, cell phone, uh, capable interoperability, uh, hardline phones, and most importantly, what everybody wants is Wi-Fi. And that allows them to communicate incredibly easy. Uh, so a, a few examples of how we've been employed over a number of years, we've been able to support the wildfires in our state and many areas that we're tasked to, to support. There might be issues with the terrain where cell phones and radios aren't really feasible or uh, cell phone towers, uh, fiber optic cables in the area have been burned up due to fires. So we can come in, uh, set up our tent if, if that's where we're operating out of on a bare patch of dirt or in some kind of facility within a matter of an hour, we can provide that incident commander with basically, uh, like I said, Wi-Fi or phones or uh, interoperability. That's something that I think is talked about a lot in the information technology world that not everybody realizes that sometimes police departments or fire departments from from different areas, they may have the same radio in their hand, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can talk to each other and we can help them through that encryption or interoperability so they can talk. So that's kind of a nutshell for you. The beauty of this is we can also load it on an aircraft uh, pretty easily. It's uh, rolling stock. And so we've been down to Puerto Rico with it. We've been to uh, Guam. We've been around the United States. And then just most recently, we went over to support the 59th presidential inauguration in DC, where we were able to load it uh, quickly onto a commercial tractor trailer, drive it to the DC area with uh, what we call a dual driver. So they were able to drive basically around the clock. They were able to get to DC in about 30 hours. And we were able to jump on a Alaska Airlines flight, fly right into the Baltimore area, meet our equipment and be right there ready to support uh, the peaceful transition of power there. Excellent. Um, so you're also the commander of the combat communication squadron there at Fairchild. And from my understanding, that's sort of like a standalone unit. Can you talk about what that unit does and how it interacts with the rest of our Air Guard? Absolutely, Sarah. The 242nd is what we call a geographically separated unit on Fairchild Air Force Base. So we are uh, within the 194th wing, which resides, as you likely know, over on Camp Murray on the west side of the state, but we're physically located as a tenant unit within the 141st air refueling wing on Fairchild Air Force Base, which is a tenant of the 92nd air refueling wing, uh, the active duty Air Force unit that's on Fairchild. Uh, so to 
expand on that question about the 242nd Combat Communications Squadron. We are a communications unit that can be packed up and within 72 hours, we should be able to get out the door, get on board an airplane with our people and equipment and deploy anywhere in the world. We really just need a, a bare patch of land uh, that we can set up our tents and equipment and be able to see the horizon and point our, our SATCOM uh, satellite communications equipment up and connect and be able to provide much like the JISC in a larger scale, be able to provide uh, a forward operating base or even larger uh, an air expeditionary wing with communications, just like you are used to there at your home station uh, with uh, an internet connection, phones, network, anything that you need for uh, information sharing. Okay, so then what what kind of airmen make up the squadron? So is it mostly uh, communications networking or is it a fair share of logistics? Because it sounds like there's got to be a ton of equipment involved in this. Well, you're exactly right, Sarah. It is, uh, it's a really interesting mission and I've had some experiences in other units that were more uh, specialized where in the combat comm world, we have a bunch of different AFSCs. So we're able to have, of course, the technical experts in information systems that you would expect. So everybody from satellite communications to networking uh, skill sets, so routing and switching to the cyber operations, cybersecurity folks, uh, right into what we consider uh, being able to support anybody with communications that you're used to, your help desk type of uh, skill sets. But what we also have is logistics and supply members that keep all of our equipment, our $16.1 million worth of equipment uh, prepared and ready to go out the door. We also have a bunch of support with which includes 25 vehicles so there's a vehicle management section that manages and maintains all of our vehicles. We have a power production section and HVAC, HVAC, which uh, provides all our heating and air conditioning of our tents and equipment. So as you're probably familiar with, electronics put off a lot of heat. So if we are operating in a, a rather warm environment or a humid environment, we have to control the temperature and the air around that equipment. So we have a number of, of specialties and logistics that are attached to the unit. And I'm, I could go into other lengths with, with each of those, but I think you get the idea. There's quite a few people and all highly trained, highly motivated individuals that actually support us getting out the door in 72 hours and then functioning, as I mentioned, in a bare base location if necessary. So what's the coolest piece of equipment that you guys have? The coolest piece of it? <laughs> I would have to say our airmen. They're probably the best. Uh, I've talked about this and I'll, I'll just um, share a little story. I, I grew up the son of an auto mechanic and I came into the Air Force thinking I wanted to work on airplanes. So to give you a little perspective, 
folks that work on vehicles and work on airplanes, the tools that they use are generally the same. They, you know, a wrench is a wrench for the most part, and I'm probably going to get in trouble for generalizing like that, but really the same tools that my father used, I could use to work on my vehicle and, and aircraft mechanics the same. When you relate that to information technology, every every day, maybe every month, it seems that they they change the tools that we use to work on the equipment, which is also changing. And we have the most dynamic, brilliant minds that uh, we recruit into the National Guard, both on the Army and Air National Guard side, that are able to just constantly respond to a challenge and be able to take uh, a requirement from an incident commander or a military commander and translate that into uh, a capability using the equipment and tools that we have on hand. And sometimes they have to create the tool to actually work on the piece of equipment. So I'd have to say they're the coolest thing. For an, an inanimate object, I would have to say our SATCOM equipment is the coolest thing that we have because that communicates with outer space and I still haven't figured out how that actually works pushing uh, ones and zeros across radio frequencies, but that's about the end of where I geek out. I had to learn how to set up a VSAT satellite when I was a lieutenant, and I still don't understand what was happening, but we did get internet after we set it up, so I think we did okay. <laughs> well, I am really impressed, Sarah, that you mentioned a VSAT, a very small aperture antenna, I think is uh, what you're talking about, and that is, uh, that's awesome. We, we might have a spot for you over in the 242. Yes, I can open a box and then I can put the satellite up and I can press a power button. <laughs> yeah. And then so, what does AFSC stand for before we go on? Okay, so that's an Air Force specialty code uh, in the Army. That would be an MOS, so a military occupational specialty, I believe. So it's really their career field, their discipline. Uh, similar to, you know, a college, uh, a major that you're you're studying. Okay, cool. I just wanted to clear that up because you brought that up. Um, I guess now we'll go into your guys's most recent deployment of the JISC uh, to the presidential inauguration. So if you just want to uh, sort of introduce us to that whole process what happened after the two drivers who apparently had the worst job of driving 30 hours got to DC and you guys just, you know, casually walked off a plane. What happened after that? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that, that's a great story and, and one I'm, I'm very excited to talk about, but I want to back up to 2017. Our unit had the great honor of supporting the 58th presidential inauguration. And so we were invited to, to come back this year and support the 59th and using a lot of the lessons, lessons learned that we had from, uh, from January of 2017. Uh, we arrived there in uh, BWI and Baltimore's airport. And yes, uh, it was quite nice to uh, enjoy the comfort of Alaska Airlines and, and get off the the aircraft and have our truck and trailer already there. We spent a couple of days with 15 other GISCs, if you can imagine that, and I think six 
MEOX, which is a, a emergency, I'm sorry, a mobile emergency operations center, which is a, the equivalent of a, an RV with a bunch of communications in it that supports uh, other natural disasters and that kind of stuff. So we had the benefit of our team and these 15 other GIS and these six other MEOX there for a few days where we could spend time in making sure a all of our equipment arrived safely without any damage and function properly and then able to communicate with these other gists and meox so that we could create essentially a mesh network across the entire national capital region and all communicate uh, we were very successful in that it, it took a few days there was a few hiccups uh, part of the reason is They've been just constantly upgrading our equipment. And so some folks were operating on legacy equipment. Uh, there's some changes to the encryption and uh, how we communicate. So we got all that ironed out. And the, the idea is that communications is established and is uh, robust before anybody else moves into the area of responsibility, which is exactly what happened. We arrived about a week before the inauguration we were able to get everything established, make sure we could all talk, and then the forces that did arrive were able to communicate as soon as they they uh, put their boots on the ground. I'll mention one thing that that maybe others can appreciate. You know, we've been around the world with this capability and a lot of different environments. What we did not anticipate is the national capital region, which to my knowledge, never anything like this has uh, been done. We were trying to communicate in an area that is full of very uh, dense granite buildings, very uh, uh, dense structures where radio frequencies don't pass through very easily. So this was a very unique experience for us and we had to leverage all of our talents and all of our equipment to come up with repeaters around the area so that we could bounce the signal around some of these structures. We had a tasking to actually have communications inside the Capitol building, which worked out fine inside the Capitol, but it wouldn't transmit outside of the building without repeaters. So really a unique experience for us and uh, and beyond meeting the commander's intent there the the training and then uh, life lessons that came out of that are just amazing for us. So that's kind of a nutshell. We we provided that communications right from the beginning and we're able to help all of the different agencies talk, bounce radio frequencies around the national capital region. So everybody was able to communicate as necessary. And uh, then we did the reverse to come home. We we got on board an aircraft, flew home and our equipment uh, was road hauled home. Was it the same two guys that drove it home that drove it there? <laughs> you know, I don't think so. So uh, I can't confirm that, but I, I don't think they got the pleasure of, uh, of, of doing that trip twice. Well, that's probably for the best. I don't know if I'd want to see everything back in reverse after just doing that. What, they were there for two weeks maybe? And Drive. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long uh, because we utilize commercial drivers. So oh, okay. they, 
so they they met us here in Spokane, delivered it out there in uh, the D.C. area. And then about 10 days later, uh, I wasn't actually there when they uh, loaded it up. So I didn't see if it was uh, if it was Jared or not. Yeah, it was our, our driver that we talked to here in Spokane. That's awesome. So given that this was your second year, is there any like major lessons learned now that you've done this twice that you're going to be bringing back in hopes that you might be able to support again? Well, remarkably, we just had an after action uh, discussion on this, and there's a lot of lessons to be learned, and and some of it relates to our equipment, so I won't bore you with that. Um, I think the idea that we need to take forward is 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 do much of the same things that we did go out there early uh, and give some of our our more junior folks a chance to be involved with this because when it only happens every four years really there's just not um, you know who knows where I'll be in the world in four years it's kind of remarkable that I had a chance to go twice you know it's like the Olympics um, you know who's to think that the same people that went this year will be there in four years to carry over that continuity. So I think that's probably the biggest lesson is really documenting what we did and, and getting a good plan together. So it doesn't matter who goes uh, in 2025 that we have uh, a good continuity handoff because the equipment's gonna be different. Most likely the circumstances are gonna be different and the people are gonna be different, but uh, the mission you know, can function and, and proceed if we've got that good continuity. So is that something then that you guys intentionally like write down a pretty hefty summary of for whoever comes next? Oh, absolutely. And like they say, no job is done until the paperwork is complete. And, you know, we're back and uh, there's there's certainly a sense of relief to everybody that it was uneventful for us. We went and did our mission and came home. Uh, all happy and healthy and uh, 10 fingers, 10 toes, but we now need to spend time uh, and author an after action report. And that's already started. In fact, it started on the, uh, the five hour flight home from, from Baltimore of drafting up those after actions. And, and it can't all be written by me. It really needs to be written by, uh, by this, the NCOs the ones that are the backbone of the mission that really know what's going on that can can lay down that continuity and and everybody needs to get eyes on that report and make sure that it's accurate and it covers what is important and uh, and then you know make sure that's in a, a place that will remain for four years and doesn't uh, evaporate. Great. Joe, are you do you have any questions? No, I think uh, I think you kind of asked very similar to what I was going to ask, and that was regarding like what what differences from four years ago today. You know, with technology advancing, what different things you know you can do with different pieces of technology. What are some of the biggest things you noticed that were easier easier for your job, or different, or even made it more difficult this time around? Well, Joe, I can easily answer that uh, in a couple of points. Uh, one. Um, I was brand new to the mission, you know, four years ago, 
uh, didn't know what to expect. So what was easier is I knew the terrain. I had a pretty good idea of what was going on and, and had the benefit of, of mentoring some of the junior members that were going along who, you know, could possibly be there in four years. What was more difficult was the obvious, the fact that there was a pandemic going on and there was a lot of restrictions and things that we need to to follow to mitigate the risk of COVID-19. So we had to practice physical distancing as much as possible and hygiene and alternate shift schedules and things to keep our team safe and really look at it as a, as a weapon system that needs to be on, on point when, when uh, called upon, you know, so we really had to keep people safe. And then of course, as uh, you may be familiar with, there was about five times the number of uniform personnel in the area. When I was there in 2017, we had mm, just north of 4,000 members of the National Guard in the National Capital Region. And this time I'm hearing it was somewhere around 26,000 members that we supported with our communications in some form or fashion or were prepared to, uh, to support with communication. So those two things between the, the COVID uh, mitigation and, I don't know, public math there, nearly five times, six times the number of people that we were asked to support was, was quite incredible. All right, then I'm going to ask you uh, if there's anything you want to make sure that you say about the folks that you brought out there and then also just your unit in general and give you sort of the, the platform to say whatever you want on those two issues. Okay, I really do appreciate the opportunity to speak to that. Um, as you can probably imagine, there was a lot of distractions going into this mission from things in the media to just the, the political environment, uh, differences in opinions. Um, I, I truly believe the, the threat to our service members was incredibly high compared to four years ago. We really didn't know what that environment looked like. And so for our airmen to be able to maintain a focus the way they did uh, was just was just inspiring. They stayed focused on what we had to do, what the mission was. They relied on each other to solve problems and stayed focused. And it really made my job very easy. And I had the benefit of, uh, of an excellent chief and captain that were able to really manage the operations from day to day and allowed me to focus on the bigger picture and, and keeping our leadership informed and making some decisions related to logistics, but it is our airmen and NCOs and, and junior officers that are just, that make the mission happen. And I, I just couldn't be more proud of how focused they were, how well they took care of each other. And, and our conditions there were less than de desirable, uh, to say the least, and not one of them complained at all. They were there for a very special reason. Uh, I think people felt an honor to be able to support a presidential inauguration and and we got there and got back safely and I couldn't be more proud of them. And then is there anything else you want to make sure you bring up about uh, the 242 and uh, their mission before we close out? 
Well, I always want to take a chance to talk about our unit. Uh, we continue to recruit what we think are the best and brightest from the local community, but we, you know, we reach out as far as uh, the coast and and even into other states. And and the mission to me is just very exciting. We work hard and we play hard, uh, but it's really a, a family culture. We take care of each other because when you're out there in the field, sometimes it's uh, it's it's all you got is each other and i really enjoy the culture that we have in our unit and i would just welcome anybody that has interest in the it field that doesn't necessarily see themselves working in a cubicle uh, that doesn't mind getting out and getting dirty uh, that's what we're all about we're we're a fast-paced mission we we operate under sometimes uh, inclement weather and in sometimes in faraway places but to me, it's really exciting and it's uh, awesome to come back and kind of look at what we were able to accomplish. And many of the skills that we have in our unit, uh, some of the best training is in our, our technical training schools that make them highly marketable in the civilian world. And some of the certifications that they achieve either in the technical school or when they return, make them incredibly marketable in the IT field in the civilian market. So it's, it's really a benefit to them. Yeah, I know there's some certifications that are really hard to get even in the civilian sector that you can get through the military that make a huge difference, especially with regard to how much uh, salary you're, you're able to make. Yes, and it's, it's worth stating that there are many of our, our professionals that are in the Guard, and regardless of their rank, they are not in the service for the financial gain. There are benefits that I think we all enjoy and are important to us, but many of the members, and, and I would say, I would venture to say all of the members in our unit um, have opportunities outside of the guard that they would, uh, you know, just, just to be frank, they probably lose money on drill weekends to come out and support us. And, and they do it, and they do it for that uh, sense of camaraderie and sense of mission and uh, the honor of wearing the uniform. We just clearly cannot pay them what they're worth. Uh, so we, we really feel that special that they come out and support us because their skills are just uh, priceless. For sure, and I know I've talked to General Welsh and Colonel Borchers and they've both said that the Air Guard has, especially in Washington, has gotta be the one place where the E3 will show up driving a brand new Tesla. And just you're just amazed that they're even there working with you and losing money to be there to assist you guys in in these missions that they have. But they're so passionate about that specific skill set that they have. Oh, it's absolutely true. And and many of them have the luxury of doing that job that they're paid very well for in their bunny slippers at home. And uh, we get them to to, you know meet the the standards of wearing the uniform and come out uh, and work in the guard. And, and I, I just couldn't be more humbled by that. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Um, we are very excited to uh, hear about your, your mission in DC and how that went and to talk about the 242nd, cause I know it, it doesn't uh, get too many shout outs uh, publicly. So we're happy to let everybody know what you guys are all about and to talk about the GIST capabilities. 
Well, thank you, Sarah and Joe. It's always a pleasure to, to 